Everybody's building ships and boats. Some are building monuments, others counting out floats. Everybody's in despair, every girl and boy. When then Quinn the Eskimo gets here, everybody gonna jump for joy. Come on without, come on within. You not seen nothing like the mighty Quinn. Come on without, come on within. You not seen nothing like the mighty Quinn. If you do what I want to do, can't decide on my own. Just tell me where to put it, and I'll tell you who to call. Nobody can get no sleep with someone's, anyone's dose. But when Quinn the Eskimo gets here, everybody's gonna want a dose. Come on without, come on within. You're not seeing nothing like a mighty Quinn. Wanna see you come on without. Come on within. I don't see nothing like a mighty Quinn. Do what I want to do. That. Like my. Well, just like the rest. I like my sugar sweet. Jumping coons and making haste just ain't my cup of meat. I didn't get no sleep. Feeding pigeons on the limb. But when Quinn the Eskimo gets here, all the pigeons gonna run to him. It's funny someone calls me Bavarian. Uh, my sister has gotten big into the ancestry st stuff. She's doing the deal where you click on all the uh, leafs and you follow the the, the train. And it's, it's pretty interesting, actually, because it turns out uh, no, not really Bavarian at all. A lot of Norwegian, actually. Uh, but there is obviously a lot of German. Uh, and it's near Bavaria. It's like in the Rhineland... Uh, the Palatinate, actually, uh, Baden-Württemberg, uh, uh, and then, like those the Catholic Protestant sort of liminal space there, but not Bavaria itself. But it is that like the Rhineland is where a lot of the people migrated in the nineteenth century to the United States, and they traded their uh, white wine for beer. But the most interesting one. And I said this on Twitter when I found out, is that uh, my ninth great-grandfather, like ninth, ninth great-great-great-great-grandfather, was from a small principality in northwest Germany. Uh, and in the Thirty Years' War, he was a barber surgeon in somebody's army. I don't know whose. So direct familial connection to the Thirty Years' War, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, the uh, the stream yesterday was very fun. I want to keep going because uh, much better. I mean, obviously, I can't take any credit because I just I said vague stuff like, "Hey, let's attack, uh, let's attack Transylvania." Like that's it. But doing very well. It's it's eight. It's sixteen fifty eight. I think something around there. So we've gone past the Thirty Years' War period. The peace. We got to the Peace of Westphalia much earlier with much more of Germany under Catholic rule, including 
Saxony, where Beer George was converted to Catholicism. Uh, that means that fucking Wittenberg is back under, under the church's umbrella, which is boss. Uh, but then we turned right around, went to war with the Ottomans, rinsed the Ottomans because they were at that point having a war with the Safavids, uh, and they didn't have the wherewithal to split their attention. And we kind of went around uh, through the Black Sea back door and ended up taking the Holy Land. That's right. Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand III taking over for his dad. Uh, the Habsburg of Habsburgs reclaiming the motherfucking Holy Land. Then we took a nice chunk out of Switzerland, including Geneva. And again, this is just racking up the score on the fucking prots. Oh, Geneva, Heartland, well, the place where Kelvin came up with his bullshit. Yoink, welcome back to the bosom of the one true church, bitch. And now we are going to team up with Russia and our Spanish Habsburg cousins to fuck France and Poland. We are going to uh, partition Poland. That's inevitable, but, you know, come on. There's no world where the Poland does not get partitioned a million times. Uh, the real, the real leverage the real like historical break we're going to have is that if we succeed in carving up France taking it taking like Alsace and Lorraine for the Holy Roman Empire giving a big chunk of like the Basque country and uh, Aquitaine there uh, to Spain and then turning the rest into vassal states then it's it's us the Habsburgs the Holy Roman Empire versus the uh, the English, the Norwegian, I'm sorry, the English, the fucking Dutch, and the Swedes. So I'm hoping if we can beat if we beat France, I'm going my plan would be from there, invasion of Ireland, of course. It's always the, that's always how you get, if you try, the only real way you can get to England is through Ireland. Go there, ally with the local Catholic uh, population. Uh, and at this point, uh, the I think in England, in our version of it, the English Civil War has led to a collapse of the monarchy. They got some guy in there, don't even know who the hell it is. So... So the hope here is to exterminate uh, England and, uh, at the very least, uh, uh, suborn the Dutch. As we know from history, the Dutch can be suborned, but the Anglo has to be uh, just definitively broken. And then with Germany being the uh, hegemonic polity of uh, the modern world, you get a nice, clean socialist revolution at the heart of capitalism, where it belonged. So that's the goal, to uh, 
to redirect the flow of historical forces towards uh, Germany and away from fucking England. But if we break up France, humble their, their asses, then I guess we take... Uh, I don't honestly think you, you, you take North America, but, you know, you become like a trading partner, right? So, yes, of, of course, eventually that means war with Spain and Russia, but come on. The Spaniards... They never had a chance. And you know what? It has nothing to do with their Mediterranean temperament or even the, the, the lovely weather. Uh, it has a little bit to do with the aridity of the soil in the Iberian Peninsula, but uh, only so far as it led the Spanish, it helped motivate the Spanish to take the big-style investment risk of uh, uh, exploration. They were behind the eight ball relative to the other countries in Europe, and they were forced to go west because they were holding on to some scraps of decreasingly arable land. And then the fact that they were first, and the fact that Spain is the first hegemonic uh, uh, state-like thing to emerge after the Roman Empire in Europe, after the fall of Charlemagne anyway, it meant that it commenced a competition between the other states that now had to like orient towards Spain. But Spain was never going to be able to adjust because what gets you to the top it is, is what is going to bring you down. The, 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 things that you, the tools that you use as a state to gain power, to, 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 to accelerate like past your limitations and create like a new horizon, as soon as that uh, machine has been built, it cannot be reformed meaningfully from within because the, the elite power holders who got you there are going to use their position to prevent anyone else from challenging their specific power within the structure. And so that means uh, that... For example, Spain spreads feudalism to the New World as opposed to approaching the question of uh, colonialism from a, you know, a, from a national uh, or commercial perspective. It becomes a, 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 simply a process of saying, hey, you know how there are... Uh, people who hold land and, and the rights to labor within a certain area in Iberia, we're just going to have you do that in North America or in South uh, Latin America. You, you swear your lo loyalty to the king, not even to Spain, and then you get to be your own little feudal lord. And so the vast riches of the new world, you know, extracted by the wholesale slaughter of the, of the population, uh, were alarmingly ineffective at helping the Spanish fight off rivals like France and uh, resistance within their body politic like in the Netherlands.
And so Spain just had to sort of drift through this process while France develops the absolutist state. Uh, the Dutch develop the first modern commercial economy. The English bring the commercial economy uh, into a constitutional uh, mon monarchical order. They synthesize all of these processes. Meanwhile, none of these processes are allowed to take place in Spain. And it becomes so embedded that by the 19th century, I was saying this on the stream yesterday, by the time the bourgeois buy out the land of the declining aristocrats of Spain, and the Catholic Church's land is finally put on the market, and bourgeois buy it. Instead of bringing bourgeois values to landowning, like they did in the Netherlands, like they did in uh, in uh, England, they start living like aristocrats and just blowing all of their surplus instead of investing it in improving production. Yeah, I definitely have to remember to not siege London. I need to take it immediately. The same thing with Hannibal, too. Hannibal, don't, don't fuck around. Go see, attack and take Rome. What is wrong with you? I mean, I'm sure that Hannibal had a good reason not for trying to take Rome. But... At the same time, his strategy of like playing whack-a-mole with uh, Rome's allies, I don't know. I don't know if it had a, uh, I don't know what the viability of that was. And obviously it just didn't work. Someone says, I'm describing what sounds like our bourgeois too. Precisely. Where every, this is why all orders collapse. Because there is a fix to any exogenous uh, crisis that afflicts a political order. There is a fix, always. There has to be. Because humans have the capacity to endlessly rearrange their relationship to nature. Uh, we know that. It's just a question of executing it. So we know it's possible. The reason it can't happen in the long run, accumulating crises plus the internal tensions and uh, contradictions within the society will bring about their crisis and collapse. Why they can't respond productively to crisis and, and instead have to only deepen crisis is because elites will not let go of their particular power. And it would require that to meet crisis. Like when everybody starts fighting the Dutch, when they become too dangerous in the 1700s, uh, and like France and England team up against them, the uh, the Amsterdam burghers who had built this thing, this incredible machine, helped destroy it because they wouldn't. They owned all the boats for one thing, and they didn't want to risk them in battle. They didn't want to pay taxes for the uh, the military. Uh, is there an example of it happening? Elites ceding their power to solve the crisis. I'd be interested to see someone uh, maybe put up a uh, a potential candidate for that. Uh, I think 
once you reach a certain level of social complexity and hierarchy, you have created a situation where your elites live in a different world than the one that the rest of their society lives in and the one that their society is collectively interacting with nature and other people with. Like, they are in a bubble that profoundly dwarfs and warps their experience of the world. Like, they're looking through, like, uh, to the other side of a black hole created by their wealth and power. I mean, you could call it mental illness, and in, in, like, a strict sense it is, but, of course, it can't be recognized by that because... Uh, they've the, a society has been built to uh, select for that kind of mental state. And no one can get in the bubble and stop them is the thing because they they built a system that before anything else prevents that. Other stuff is built on top of those directives, but the prime directive of maintaining that separation is the one that all goals and all energy derives from. Everything else is secondary. And, it, and, and like the story of the, the rise of the bourgeois in Europe is of the old landowning elite being forced over time to concede both by the political and military uh, power of the bourgeois as an independent social force, but also, this is the most important part, the necessity of competing with the other European powers. And the only time that like a, a subaltern class can rise to disrupt power is if they have an alliance with some segment of the elite class. Because the elite class have access to levers of power that move people through social channels. And if you don't have that executive function, your numbers and your uh, energy won't mean anything. Oh, of course, we're going to talk about the transportation of the Acadians in the Seven Years' War podcast. That's an amazing story. They just say, hey, you fucking, uh, you guys, you are you French? Are you Indian? We're not really sure. That makes us uncomfortable. Get the fuck out of here. You're going to Louisiana. The difference between being forced and choosing uh, really just comes down to uh, the context, the pressure that they face. Like they will, they will concede power if forced to by another force within their society, working class, for example, organized and around executively functional institutions. But in the absence of that, which is what you usually get towards the end of a cycle of power. They're, they've beaten everybody else off. They've 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 jacked everybody else off. They've they've defused every other uh, challenge to their internal authority. Because remember, that's the prime direction of the system. Uh, they 
are then left in a situation where they will either be destroyed or recognize their threat, the threat to them existentially and to the system that they claim to be part of existentially, and then to do something of their own choice to change it. And that's what they won't do because they cannot conceive of change as anything other than annihilation. Because they know, at a deep part, like wrapping around their spine, below conscious thought, they know what they have done. They know their crime. They think of it consciously as their da- their, the much they fear the other. But that is just a guilt. That is guilt. And it turns into a terror of the other because if I am brought low, if I am brought down from my status, how could I experience anything other than annihilation? And so if that's the choice, then there is no choice. You keep doing what been, you've been doing no matter what it does. And that is what's so terrifying about the moment we live in is that because we have evacuated a faith in any uh, superseding force that could forgive us, And we know that others, if they're as selfish as we are, and we project ourselves into others, others who are as selfish as we are, could never forgive us for what we've done. Then we will be torn limb from limb and destroyed bodily. Uh, and that that's it. Like, that's the fear. Uh, there is no hope of a greater salvation. So anything but that, basically. And without any social vocabulary for forgiveness at any level, there's, a, no, there's no point where that uh, anti-solidarity, <laughs> that, rep- that magnetic repulsion to other people and, to, uh, and, and the sense of uh, menace in, in implicit in anyone who is below us, uh, no one's going to change. No one's going to flip. No one is going to push together. Like, yes, like FDR, somebody's talking about FDR. This this is interesting to talk about guys like FDR because, like, we love to ascribe uh, a a all-powerful agenda to people at that levels of of influence and control. Guy who was U.S. president during this moment when, like, the American Goliath, the real American Goliath, the techno monster that uh, bestrides the globe was born, you know, like... You can look back and it's it's stages of uh, expansion and awareness, but and they're all organized around tipping points. And the big one of the big ones in American history is uh, World War II. Uh, and so you know you look at him, and there is this assumption that the neutering of the working class was like the general, the real motivating force behind. Uh, 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 the New Deal and the emergence of like the legalized uh, uh, labor movement. Uh, I mean, for one thing, the context of that was that 
it was a demand that was being made by a coherent and incredibly powerful and incredibly effective working class organization that was making it so that the state couldn't function without its participation. Like you were talking about, when you're talking about like the sit-down strikes in Flint, you're talking about not just withholding labor as a group, but as uh, preventing access to like huge capital resources by these companies. Like that is not sustainable. That level of class conflict is not sustainable because over time, the working class will bring this thing to a fucking halt if there is not a come down. And FDR emerges to sort of negotiate away from that uh, class apocalypse. And yes, that did the, that is an important step down the road to the working class uh, uh, political power being emasculated. But for, for guys in the specific position of, of uh, like FDR or, you know, the, the big uh, New Dealer uh, brain trust types like Harry Hopkins, I genuinely think those guys believed, and they had every reason to believe it given their life experiences, that, the, that man was being governed more and more by his reason. And that that reason applied to the question of economics would eventually lead the most influential and important people in the country and the world to recognize that capitalism would have to be uh, euthanized. That, that there would have to be a, a project of defanging capitalism and taking it over. Uh, the vision for how to do that was best exemplified in that most advanced of the social democratic states, Sweden, in the 70s with the Meidner Plan. The Meidner Plan was a, a, a concept whereby the, the state was going to, and in lieu of taxes for corporations, was going to take a percentage of stock every year. And that meant that over time, the state would eventually have a controlling interest in every large corporation operating in Sweden. And I really do think that guys like fucking FDR and, and the, and the, and Henry Wallace and the uh, new dealers in general, that's how they thought it was going to work out that. And they thought they were doing that by every choice they made. Now, was that wrong? Obviously. That's why you need to be a communist. Duh. But just saying you should be a communist is dumb because people do not come to their politics because of their virtue and insight. It's their life experiences bringing them to a conclusion through experience, not through in interacting with intellectual concepts. The intellectual concepts are what you do after the experience has happened they are the 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 symbols that you clothe your experiences with are the intellectual and ideological concepts you operate from but i think at that point like you had people even at the very top of power who could imagine a step down. 
They can imagine stepping down from their specific power position within capitalism to a more egalitarian social relationship and trade that power and money for a greater sense of social and individual security. And of course, eventually, oh, what's this? Hey, we get to flower as human beings for the first time. Wow, that's wild. Uh, but of course, you know, not even with it, not even with that. Like it, it could be a logical choice that a elite at that period could make. But now, now that the, uh, the the third world war has ended, with the final triumph of this uh, capitalism shorn of any uh, resistance within it, nobody at any level of power thinks that there can be a step down. Like, I mean, we got the richest guy on earth freaking out about FBI crime stats every day. And like, that's not because he's worried about other people. That is because he can only imagine living forever on Mars, maybe, or being stabbed to death by a, uh, a other being destroyed by the other. Those are the only deaths that that's the only ends that they can conceive of. I'm not gonna. They're not gonna die of regular human causes. They have the money to prevent that from happening, but they don't have the money necessarily to prevent the system from collapsing. Now, of course, there's plenty of other things that could happen that are being masked by this dichotomy of, uh, uh, and neurotic fixation for the for these people. Like the real reason that that uh, Musk is so uh, fixed on danger and crime uh, is not that he's going to have it happen to him, but that he is going to at some point run out a runway on his bullshit. You know. Uh, not necessarily going to happen. He has gotten to the point where you could see that him as too big to fail. But there are still plenty of ways that he completely uh, fucks this up. I mean, and I've said before, uh, the failure of AI, of uh, self-driving cars is one of the big reasons it might happen. So yeah, I increasingly think that uh, that there is a, a a always going to be a horizon uh, for human flourishing that illuminates like our day to day experiences and gives us meaning and and, and context and values. Uh, but that that is a separate question from whether this particular iteration of uh, of human uh, experience uh, it directly leads there. Yeah, that was funny. They were like, hey, uh, they show a video, they showed a video on uh, they released a video on Twitter of a self-driving car just blowing past this pedestrian. 
Like, hey, good news. It doesn't stop randomly at shrubs and uh, bags blowing by in the wind anymore. But now it will just measure the life of a person against your need to get to the store on time and just uh, roll the dice. Fact is, no one will trust it. Like, yes, that's what a human would do. A human would just drive by that person who's that far from your part of the street. But we 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 have accepted human uh, responsibility socially for those choices. And those machines cannot take that responsibility. So we will never be able to trust them. It is wild watching these guys just destroy every... The, the 08 crash created a, I, I don't want to say final because that's teleological, overly teleological, because I have no idea what's going to happen to to change the order and, and continue things. And we can never know what, like, what cross currents we're dealing with. Uh, but I will say it does feel like the last burst of a, of a dying engine after 08 when, when our... Uh, when our last like real estate based speculative economy kind of blew up and we had, we had a choice of like, okay, well, where are we going to dump money now? The answer was uh, Silicon Valley uh, because that is the next best thing to just pure financial speculation because there was no more place to uh, productively invest in the United States because we priced out uh, production in the core, this is, this is just as Marx had predicted would happen. It gets to the point where it caught its. Uh, uh, you are required to put too much capital into uh, uh, machinery automation, uh, and it makes it no longer cost effective to produce. Uh, but you can't pay people to do it because wait the wages relative to the rest of the world, are so disproportionately high that in a global market, it's not competitive. So where do you, can you dump the money? Into something that is just a bunch of uh, attempts to arbitrage existing elements of the economy and pry money from them. Uber, Netflix, all of them, uh, that's all they could do. And, the, and then, of course, there's the uh, the tech economy of, like, ad-driven uh, uh, internet interaction, you know? Like, oh, people are looking at the internet a lot. That means eyeballs. That means this is an advertising space. And then we created the uh, the ad dollar, the, the digital ad dollar, which became the succeeder to the petrodollar. Like, data became, for Spilicon Valley, the thing that backed... The, exchange, the, the transactions and backed the currency and built this that insane camp uh, series of campuses with these wild amounts of uh, money at their fingertips, which they used to create, yes, some technology, but technology that uh, mostly just can be used against the population to surveil them and uh, police them. But none of the breakthroughs that would make the future possible that these guys imagine 
like super fast your space travels and your uh, your and artificial intelligence. They hit a wall on all of that. And they're all hitting the wall simultaneously. That's where we're dealing with right now. Because the thing that allowed this to happen was zero interest rate environment, which persisted for over a decade. That environment is over. That means that the system that was built by it can no longer uh, deal and cannot, as we've discussed, adapt. So there's going to be this last push to try to bluff their way through by acting like AI and its accompanying innovations and breakthroughs that are going to save us from our uh, spiral of uh, uh, profitability. Uh, Bluff through a bridge to a future where they work. That's, I think, what they're all hoping for. Fantasizing they're going to do. But like, even if AI is functional, all it can do is further proletarianize uh, American workers and reduce Americans' buying power at a time when American consumer spending is still the engine of the world economy. Congratulations, you saved you saved some money. Now nobody can buy this bullshit. I don't think we're in the silo uh, because I can see the sun and you can't see the sun underground. Pretty stupid to think that. Yeah, because like the, the traditionally, uh, my boy Walter Scheidel has a book about this. <laughs> traditionally, the only thing that really, the one consistent thing that re- that really works to exogenously solve this problem historically when you have just, Oh, you have overproduced. We just have way too much stuff. We have way too, too much, uh, debt and way too much, uh, hoarded wealth. Uh, how do we affect a Jubilee? Well, you know, the, the, the fantasy that we all have is that we come together collectively, socially to carry out a Jubilee. Uh, and that I think is the, is the animating force behind the socialist movement is that we can get to a point where we can choose to forgive collectively and every level, spiritually, financially, and clear the slate and reduce the overhang. But traditionally what it is, is war. (laughs) War does that. War destroys the overproduced capital. Uh, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's a timely plague, uh, but usually it's war. And you know, to say, well, what does it mean to have a 
capital uh, destroying war in the context of thermonuclear weapons blanketing the planet. Yikes. Like we're seeing a, a very interesting situation though, because what differs now from 08 is that they have learned that you can't just let, you can't let anybody fail because it, it will actually spook the horses. They've seen them be spooked before and they know they'll do it. So with that in their minds, now there is no, nobody is getting left out. So that's why we've already had instantaneous uh, bailouts. At every, I know people can say they're not bailouts, whatever. Just instantaneous systemic response to collapsing institutions. It does all feel like something just needs that, that there just needs to be like one push, you know, one thing. And everybody's waiting for it. But I don't know, maybe maybe the technology has pro has progressed to the point where yeah, like it's just a it's a constant sense of suspended decline without any moment of uh of tension release. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's this default situation. Although, you got to figure that, I mean, they will absolutely not, I mean, the Republicans would let it happen, for sure. Which is the grain of truth in the analysis of the parties that says that the Republicans are like the truly radical party. You know, they're the ones that generally challenge capitalism. It's not because they are based populists. It's not because they have any sort of class analysis of society that would be liberatory, even just for white people, by the way. Like, they don't have a vision that even creates, like, a white hair and folk democracy. Like, that's not even there. And the American right-wingery has none of that. It is pure, unadorned, petty bourgeois resentment. That is it. And people respond to that, think like a lot of people who are leftists respond to that very deeply. And it's like, yeah, because you're an aggrieved petty bourgeois too. Of course you see that as, as you understand it, but don't, but that's not, that is not, uh, it cannot be politically productive. When the aggrieved petty bourgeois takes over a political system, it drives it to annihilation. Because, as I've said before, the petit bourgeois cannot have solidarity with anyone. So there can never be a reached out hand that can be grasped. So that means you've got to fucking, you will either be destroyed or you will be the author of your own destruction. And that is a act. And that is pure in its kinetic will. And so the Republican Party will destroy the economy, will destroy the world system, will put put fucking, but not product, not behind any politics that can uh, uh, respond to that productively.
My guess is that they will just give them everything. My guess is that they will give them everything, but they will. That still won't get all of the Freedom Caucus people. But it will probably, at the very least, get like the moderates who just got in. They they have been talking about doing a discharge petition, and but even those new moderates, I don't think are are going to uh, be able to vote for any anything that doesn't have cuts in it and like work requirements and other social sadism. So I could see that happening. I, I still, I don't think there's any deal that the Republicans in mass would accept for the reason I'm talking about. Like just like the McCarthy election. To do that, to just say, uh, we have no plan, we have nobody else who we would back, we have no way of uh, having an alternative uh, leadership to McCarthy, we're just going to vote no. And you could do, doing that once as like a, hey, a shot across the bow, like we don't like you thing, okay, but then to just keep doing it, vote after vote after vote, there is no uh, uh, organization here. There, there's nothing but the collective death drive of these fucking uh, lunatics and uh, uh, con artists, sociopaths, uh, small business tyrants. They have, they just know. And again, people look at that no and they see a heroic, you know, because it's something. Even though it is just this suicidal death drive, it speaks to some desire to shape one's own life, some desire to assert autonomy in the face of the onrushing history. The problem the liberals have, and the left largely too, whatever the hell that means, like just people who self-describe as leftists, is that there's this understanding that the system as such does not work, cannot work, is only getting worse. But also, all of the institutions that make up this system must be upheld, must be validated. And that means must you must be, in the face of them, passive, basically. I mean, people are wondering, like, why didn't they raise the debt ceiling before the Republicans got in? They could have done it during the fucking lame duck, or they could have done it before that. And Biden said, no, that's wrong. But I gotta, I gotta wonder, would they have not been able to do it? Like, would guys like Manchin have said, no, on principle, we can't raise it without doing something about the debt? And so they just said, ah, oh, it wouldn't be right to cover for the impotence of the White House. So that's why people want to talk about, oh, Biden's, a, what Biden wants. Is Biden really a neoliberal? Uh, how can he be for work requirements now after doing the child tax uh, credits earlier in his administration? This is incoherent. That's correct, because there is no presiding ideology. 
There is not even a plan, an evil plan. Like the, the Democrats, the true believers will insist that there is a good plan with a good long-term agenda the Democrats have. There is a mirror argument that says, no, they have a bad plan that's bad for us. I think the truth is that there is no plan anywhere in any of the parties because the organs of planning have been uprooted and dissolved by the last 40 years of American politics in which money has completely overwhelmed the process and all countervailing democratic accountability institutions have been dissolved in it. So it's like, oh, the Democrats, they want to cut entitlements. They're, this is, they could have, some of them probably do, but there is no generalized goal for anybody. There's just a bunch of self-seeking freaks the kind of empty, the kind of empty monsters who went into politics at this point in history. And like that is why one of my my single least favorite genre of political writing, worse than anything. Uh, are articles that give the Democrats advice on what to do, like say, like Democrats need to play tough on the death ceiling negotiations or anything like that, because you are abetting a lie bigger than anything that the Republicans claim to believe. Whatever you you talk all day about disinformation and the monstrous lies that the the Republicans feed their idiot base and the the the, the paranoid style. But if you're going out there acting like, oh, yeah, there's a there is somebody who can make a decision to activate a tactical plan of action that is going to that it, that has something in common with, like, the general Democratic voters agenda, uh, economic agenda or social agenda, you are lying to them and to the audience and yourself. And that's why I've gotten to the point where I'm not mad. I can't get mad at them anymore because they're just, they're just flesh wads. They're, they are, uh, organic, uh, they're organic circuit, uh, connectors. Like they, they exist to move the electricity through the system. Like there has to be like bio nodes between the, uh, the electrical transmission, the signal. The algorithm needs meat puppets. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men. I think like like one of my very first Kush vlogs back at the fuck during the during uh quarantine. I think I read that. I think I read uh that's from the wasteland, right? No, that's the sound poem. <sighs> Leaning together, headpiece full of straw. Oh, God, a killer of the flower moon. Hey, you know what? The political system is completely intractable, and, uh, you know, we're, we're frozen. We have our choice of, of, uh, of kinetic self-defining action in uh, service of a nihilistic uh, aggression 
uh, or uh, fetishize uh, and moralize our paralysis and failure to act. That's your political options. But God damn it, there's a new Scorsese. It's going to drop. The trailer looked fire. Very excited for it. Yeah, that's the really is the mark of a good director. Do they want to make anything contemporary? And if they do, they uh, either are poisoned with hubris or just don't have that much imagination. Oh, man, that's a good question. Will there be a good COVID movie? I cannot imagine. And obviously, you see, nobody wants to make one. You know, there, there were a few attempts to address it directly uh, while it was happening, and people were dealing with more of the restraints of shooting with COVID precautions. But as soon as that lifted, everyone's like, we're just going to forget this happened. And I mean, I'm not, I, of course, I try to forget too. Because what, what do you get from remembering, you know? Like, you get the satisfaction of being uh, more aware of the horror that happened than everybody else. And yeah, like if you follow more close uh, uh, COVID, uh, personal COVID protective regimes, you're less likely to get it again if you've gotten it or for the first time. But there's no way to commiserate about it. There's no way to build a meaningful politics around it. Like, the only COVID politics that have persisted are the, are the ones around uh, petty bourgeois resentment. What a shock. Which is why RFK for me is a non-starter. Like, obviously, it doesn't matter. And people who are still looking for a, a, a presidential primary savior, given our experience, have willfully deluded themselves. But yeah, if you want to if you want to keep people thinking about COVID, the only lens left that can socially reproduce that into like images and like concrete ideas around it is the id rage of people who were mildly inconvenienced. All the real horror, all the lasting horror, cannot be. Uh, politically metabolized. It'll be interesting. I mean, even the, uh, we love to uh, document our recent past. We've got the new thing where brands and events have taken over the role of IP for adult films, films for adults, rather. And there, even something as relatively dry as the 2008 collapse has had several films 
margin call, uh, smartest guys in the room, uh, the big short. Uh, there was an HBO movie where Giamatti played Ben Bernanke, I think. I don't know if we're going to ever get anything like that on COVID. I don't know if anybody wants that. We'll see. It'll probably be a few more years for sure. Wolf of Wall Street isn't actually really about uh, the 08 collapse. In fact, I remember Matthew Iglesias complained. He said, if you want to make a movie about the uh, about the crisis, why would you make it about this guy who was scamming uh, people on penny stocks? That's not the story of... Uh, that's not the story of the OA collapse. It's like, well, who gives a shit about that? Like, that's not what a guy like Scorsese cares about. The the, the specifics. There's the literally every time that he, uh, DiCaprio starts explaining the the actual way that his scam works, he would just go like, "You don't give a fuck about that." He is at like, who does something like that? Who populates this economy? Who responds to the incentives that we're making? What's going to fail first, banks or commercial real estate? I mean, commercial real estate looks like it's in real trouble, and I don't know if the mechanisms of uh, bailing it out are as well lubricated as they are for the uh, banking sector. I would, of course, love to see a 900-year-old Clint Eastwood make a COVID movie. That would be very fun. I don't know. This might be the, somebody that asked about the entertainment industry uh, now with maybe even SAG uh, striking. I mean, I think that SAG and, and WG are right to strike now. I do think that the, the AI for solutions these people are imagining cannot work the way they want them to, but nobody's going to figure that out until it's they've destroyed the entire in industry. Like they will destroy the industry pursuing these AI fixes, and then in the and then they will be just be gone. Uh, So they do have to, st to stand up now, but like I don't know if the studios feel like they're in a position to make any kind of deal. I said, I'm sorry, WGA, not the DGA, of course not. Directors aren't going to fucking stick their neck out for anybody, come on. It's amazing, though, like, de-skilling is the directive, is the prime directive of uh, automation. It, 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 it's not to relieve people of labor. It is to remove a monetizable, leverage-bearing skill from laboring, from, from the specific laborer.
And it's like, what's going to fill that gap? I think it's just going to be more. Uh, it's just going to be maybe a leveling up of like social media elements and like parasocial entertainments. It does feel like there still need to be like flagship entertainment productions. Honestly, they should be seen as loss leaders. Because if we don't have entertainment, we don't have anything. Like that is, not to get too Neil Postman about it, but the thing that all of this is designed to produce, yes, profit, obviously. That is what it's meant to produce. But like that, the profit motive like made legible to human life to 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 be de apt to be materialized and incarnated is to be entertained. Like it is not like life is not uh, to be is is not a contest of will and, and of of overcoming obstacles and uh, asserting one's individuality in the face of 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 the world that they encounter. And to you know have their labors uh, be acts of will, it is to consume. Yes, obviously, but specifically to consume uh, stories about why this is all good and why we should be doing this, and why you don't need to have uh, uh, any kind of control over your life because these stories are telling you exactly why the world is the way it needs to be. And the fact that we're seeing these load-bearing institutions uh, being undermined, it, this is what happens when capitalism is not uh, in context of resistance from something outside of it. It will eat itself. Uh, and it will dissolve from within its own institutions in the search for any morsel of profit in a context of declining profit margins. Or not profit margin, profits in, in, in aggregate. Because obviously there's all-time high profit profit rates, profit margins right now uh, in all these sectors. Uh, but uh, they're just being dissolved from within. It's all getting eaten up. And our... Uh, Elites can no longer invest profitably, so they just conspicuously consume. Like we've got now a bunch of Spanish aristocrats and debauched bourgeois. The investment mechanism that's supposed to uh, keep uh, capitalism one step above the Malthusian wolf is investment, which creates new advances in technology. Uh, and efficiency. So who knows? Who knows? It's certainly an interesting time to live. And you know what? We're all going to make sense of it one way or the other. We're all coming out the other end of this. And I think we will all end up uh, in a field laughing at how uh, silly it was that we ever were so scared. 
But that's me. I'm a kook. Bye-bye.